In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the battlefront, analyse the reported arrest of Igor Gherkin in Russia, and we speak to friend of the podcast John Spencer about his recent research trip to Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 21st of July one year and 147 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant, chair of urban warfare studies at the Modern War Institute and author John Spencer, and Ukrainian journalist Maria Romanenko. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Prior to Dom's return next week, it's me filling in on both the military and political updates today for what has been another eventful 24 hours. I ended yesterday's episode talking about the challenges Ukrainian troops are facing in breaking through Russian defences. Regular listeners will recall the US's controversial sending of cluster munitions to Ukraine in response. Well, the news out of Washington this morning is that they are having an impact on said Russian defences. So this is coming from the White House National Security Spokesman. They say they are using them appropriately and they're using them effectively. So they are having an impact on Russia's defensive formations and Russia's defensive manoeuvring. He added Ukrainian forces started using the weapons in the last week or so. And just a note on this, it is worth bearing in mind that the longer articles I discussed yesterday's relaying issues with the counteroffensive will have been based on research quite likely a week or more old. As we've often found throughout the war, there is a delay between changes on the battlefield and us measuring the real impact. So just remember that. In other news, the fallout from Moscow's withdrawal from the grain deal continues, with further Russian missiles reportedly slamming into a grain terminal in Odessa last night. That's according to the local governor there, who said it was the fourth successive night of airstrikes on the south of Ukraine. 
A quote from him, unfortunately, the grain terminals of an agricultural enterprise in Odessa region were hit. The enemy destroyed 100 tons of peas and 20 tons of barley, which is obviously in addition to the 60,000 tons yesterday that had been destroyed in the blasts there. There is evidently a concerted effort by Moscow to destroy Ukraine's reserves of grain in order to increase its leverage in upcoming discussions. As the Institute for the Study of War puts it, the Kremlin likely views the grain initiative as one of its few remaining avenues of leverage against the West and has withdrawn from the deal to secure concessions. Ukraine has now said that it will attack Russian cargo ships travelling in the northeastern sector of the Black Sea in retaliation to a similar warning from the Kremlin yesterday when Moscow said it would regard all ships heading to Ukraine as smuggling weapons. The Kremlin has turned the Black Sea into a danger zone. Those are the words of Ukraine's military in a statement earlier today. But the fate of the Moskva cruiser proves that Ukraine's defensive forces have the necessary means to repel Russian aggression. It's also worth adding Russia has laid additional sea mines in the approaches to Ukrainian ports, according to the White House. We believe that this is a coordinated effort to justify any attacks against civilian ships in the Black Sea and lay blame on Ukraine for these attacks. That's coming from them. All this has, as I touched on yesterday, sent wheat prices soaring in what charities are calling an attack on the world's poorest. Prices have risen by 13% in just three days. Zelensky said that the ports that were attacked store about a million tonnes of food. And this was due, apparently, to be delivered to countries in Africa and Asia a long time ago. Anna Gorella, Ukraine Operations Director of the aid charity Action Against Hunger, has said, and I'll quote from her, Ukraine is the world's breadbasket. In the mid to long term, we could see major increases in the price of food. If the suspension of the deal lasts, there could be a potential impact on price inflation and therefore on the world's access to food. We have seen this already happen in lower income countries such as Yemen and the Democratic Republic of Congo. The World Food Programme likewise said it deeply regrets Russia's decision to kill the deal, saying that it has acted as a calming force on global food markets until now. Now, on this theme, I mentioned yesterday that Germany has said it is working with allies to try to get the grain out by rail to make sure that the grain doesn't rot in the silos of Ukraine and it reaches people in the world who are in need of it. However, Ukrainian officials have said that the rail work now just simply doesn't have the capacity to carry all of the exports. Quote, land corridors cannot export the full amount of cereals available for export, which means prices will go up because of the shortage of delivery. No doubt governments and international bodies are working on solutions. I sense there is a growing recognition that Russia cannot be allowed to hold food markets to ransom like this in the way Putin sought to do so over energy last year. As with that issue, there needs to be a coordinated response which weakens Moscow's hand. Doing nothing isn't really an option unless one ultimately concedes to Russia's demands. And breaking in the past 30 minutes or so is the news that Erdogan has said his planned talks with Putin next week in Turkey could lead to a revival of the deal and is actually calling on Western countries to consider Russia's requests, namely that the Russian Agricultural Bank be reconnected to the SWIFT system after it was cut off by the EU in June last year so that it can market market its own grain. 
But can the West afford that? It would send a terrible signal, hence why another solution needs to be found and fast, according to those who are very upset about this, of which, as I've said, there are many. Now, turning very briefly to the front lines, David, Ukrainian troops reportedly persistently press forward with counteroffensive measures across multiple sectors, registering progress. Ukrainian commander operating in Bakhmut disclosed that forces had made a substantial advancement of approximately 1.8 kilometres, predominantly on the southern side of Bakhmut. Additionally, Russian milli bloggers asserted that the Ukrainian forces also pushed forward on Bakhmut's northern flank. Meanwhile, Ukrainian military authorities confirmed that advancements are being sustained in the Bodiansk and Melitopol directions with a steady daily gain south and southwest of Orohiv. As ever, these reports may be a few days out of date and are not easily verified until some time after the fact. So just always bear that in mind. So those are the leading military stories, David. Thank you very much, Francis. Before we go to Roland, what's caught your eye politically and diplomatically this morning? Well, the big story here in Britain is the breaking news that the Ukrainian ambassador, a popular and respected figure, has been sacked by Zelensky. But Roland is going to cover that. In other developments, the CIA chief, William Burns, has suggested that Wagner leader Yevgeny Prigozhin should not fire his food taster, suggesting that Putin will likely take further revenge against him following his failed mutiny. He believes Putin is trying to buy time as he works out how to deal with the mercenary head. And this was coming from a speech he was giving at the Aspen Security Forum. I'll quote from him. What we are seeing is a very complicated dance. Putin is someone who generally thinks that revenge is a dish best served cold. In my experience, Putin is the ultimate apostle of payback. So I would be surprised if Pogosian escapes further retribution. Mr. Burns also said that Putin will likely want to hold on to Wagner, but get rid of Prigozhin. And that's something that tallies with our own analysis on this podcast. There are several reports that the exiled Wagner fighters are now increasing their activity in Belarus with training Belarusian special forces on modern tactics and potentially opening another base near Belarus's international border with Ukraine. Poland, as we've touched on, is evidently concerned and has said it will move military units to the east of the country to defend against Wagner's Belarusian presence. Putin predictably has lashed out as a result, accusing Poland of having territorial ambitions in the former Soviet Union and warned that any aggression against Belarus would be considered an attack on Russia. Suffice to say, there's absolutely zero evidence that Poland has any territorial ambitions. It's piffle, frankly. But lastly, given our particular focus on the subject of children this week, the Belarus Red Cross has sparked international outrage after its chief told Belarusian state television the organisation is actively involved in bringing Ukrainian children from Russian-occupied areas to Belarus. It comes after the Telegraph revealed an estimated 3,000 Ukrainian children will likely be deported to Belarus by this autumn. Both Ukraine and the Belarusian opposition have decried this transfer as unlawful. Unsurprisingly, the actions of the Belarusian Red Cross has drawn stern criticism from the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. They say they have contacted the Belarusian Red Cross to express their grave concern stressing its chief doesn't speak on behalf of the Federation and his statements do not represent our views. I think it's just important to understand that these organisations position themselves as above 
the fray, above the politics, doing what is right and following international law. So this is being seen as a deeply worrying development by many and is also being weaponized by some as a means of criticizing the way that charities, some charities, have conducted themselves in and on Ukraine. Listeners who've been with us for some time will recall the scandal over the amnesty report, for instance. So a lot going on, David, to put it mildly, but I'll take a breather there. Thanks very much, Francis. Roland Oliphant, thank you so much for coming on. Would you like to start by talking a little bit about this news from the UK that Vladimir Zelensky has apparently dismissed Vadim Prostyko, the well-respected ambassador, Ukraine's ambassador to the UK? What's happening here? Yes, so this morning a decree was published on the presidential website in Ukrainian, a very short decree which says this is the decree about the dismissal of uh, Vadim Prostyko as an ambassador to the United Kingdom and also as Ukraine's permanent representative to the International Maritime Organization. And the next bit of it under the title says uh, Vadim Prostyko is dismissed as ambassador to the United Kingdom and the International Maritime organization, no explanation. However, there's been some reporting just in advance of this, there was some reporting and I've basically confirmed it through my own sources this morning. This is basically about his comments. Basically, he criticized Zelensky's handling of that whole Ben Wallace thing the other week. You'll remember that Ben Wallace, the defense secretary, caused a bit of a controversy at NATO when he suggested to members of the press that Um, Ukraine needed to show more gratitude for the help it was getting from the West. Uh, Mr. Zelensky responded, how else can we show our gratitude? We can wake up in the morning and thank the minister. Let him write to me and tell me how to thank him. So quite quite a sharp, barbed response during that. Now, on July 13th, Mr. Prostyko went on Sky News. And this 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 is the remark that seems to have got him in trouble. He said, President Zelensky saying each and every morning we'll wake up and call Ben Wallace to thank him. I don't think that kind of sarcasm is healthy. I don't think we need to show the Russians there's something between us. We're working together. Ben can call me and tell me anything he wants to do. Now, as far as I as far as I understand, that's not that's not the only thing going on. But that that is the main nub. Kiev was very angry about that. The ambassador had a number of fairly uncomfortable phone calls with headquarters over the past couple of days. And this is the result. Exactly what happens to him next, I don't know. Normally, he's a career diplomat. He's a very respected diplomat. He's a former foreign minister of Ukraine. In fact, he, I think he even literally drafted the original Minsk agreements back in 2014, 2015. That's that's how high it was up the, the diplomatic tree in Ukraine. So you'd think he would be shifted to another position somewhere, maybe recalled. That is all entirely unclear. I think he'll certainly be missed in Britain. He's been very popular, very respected here. He has this way of pushing Ukraine's frequent requests and its position in this polite, artful, respectful way that also leaves no doubt about how urgent the request is. He's very, very good at it. He's a he's a very accomplished interlocutor. Um, I've, I've met him several times. I've had you know, many conversations with him. He really is, you know, an ambassador at the top of his game. And he's been handling, you know, Ukraine's relations with, you know, its most important ally by the United States, one of its most important allies, pretty well, I think. So this is a, 
it's a significant shake-up, and I think a lot of people are probably going to look at it as a bit of a pity. I mean, do, how much do you think we can read into this? Does it show us potentially that Zelensky's you know, quite touchy about some of the events that have unfolded? Or, on the other hand, is it, look, you, you, look you, no matter who he is, no matter how respected, you can't have a senior diplomat basically you know, turning around and telling you you did the wrong thing? Well, there's got to be a bit of both to that, right? I mean, you can't really have a senior diplomat criticising the president in a way, although... I would guess what Mr. Pristyko was trying to do on Sky News was to smooth things over. And it's his job, or he sees it as his job, to to keep relations with Britain smooth. So that's what he was trying to do. On the other hand, he had, you know, publicly said that remarks made by his president were unhelpful, which, you know, you can't really have diplomats doing that. You know, on the other hand, it does sound, I, I, I don't have deep insight to this at the moment, but but from what I've heard, it does sound like there was genuine ire back in Kiev. And one thing that's not entirely clear to me is whether this decision came from Mr. Zelensky himself, or it came, is it from the presidential office, or it came from uh, Mr. Pristyko's direct boss, Dmitry Kuleba, the foreign minister. Officially, you know, you'd think it would be Mr. Kuleba who makes the decision, then asks Mr. Zelensky to sign uh, the decree, or maybe the ultimate decision maker is, of course, Mr. Zelensky, he's the president. Maybe he made that decision. I mean, this this is not the first time Mr. Prostyko has gone a bit off piece. If you go back to the run-up to the war, mid-February 2022, um, he gave an interview to the BBC when they were asking about what, in, if you remember those weeks, those weeks and months where we weren't sure if there was really going to be a war or not, but, you know, the drumbeat was building and there were all these threats coming out of Moscow. And he was asked, well, you know, the, the Russians seem pretty unhappy about Ukraine wanting to be in NATO. Wouldn't it make sense for Ukraine to, to give up that ambition if it if it avoids a war? And he said, well, yes, we might. Under that pressure, we might. And very quickly, that was contradicted by Mr. Zelensky. And before you know it, he was he was back on a, on a British news program. Um, I can't remember which one. Saying, I'd just like to clarify my remarks. We're, we're, we're certainly looking to make as many compromises as possible. We don't want a war, but... You know, NATO membership is not on the table. It's enshrined in the Constitution. That's what we're, we're we're seeking to do. On the other hand, look, I've I've had a lot of meetings, chats with him, trying to get a line out of him, and I I, I can think of several times where I've tried to try to prise him away from the official narrative, try to get get a chink in the armor and and, and find out what he really thinks, and I find that found that very difficult. I, I, I've occasionally persuaded him to to talk to me in retrospect about things once they're no longer newsworthy at all and he might say well you know it was a bit like this but i found him you know exempt you know, frustrating from a journalist's point of view frustratingly professional and scrupulous in maintaining the lines that he's been given from kiev Thank you, Roland. Let's move from the UK to Russia. We're hearing some news that you've you've tweeted about that apparently Igor Gherkin has been arrested. What are we hearing? Yeah, so this is this is the other um, fascinating development. Um, so Igor Igor Strelkov Gherkin, the former commander of the the militia in in East Ukraine in 2014, former FSB colonel, convicted war criminal for the shooting down of MH17 was arrested at his home in Moscow this morning, we think by members of the investigative committee. That's 
Russia's, how would I put this? Some people say it's Russia's equivalent of the FBI. It's it's a kind of federal federal organization which takes over particularly serious cases. It's, it's a law enforcement outfit. Um, so we had a report initially from Arbeker, a Russian newspaper. They were saying that we've got information that law enforcement agents have arrested him and that their preliminary information was that the arrest had been prompted by a statement given by a former Wagner fighter, but it didn't say what that statement said or why he might have been convicted. A little bit after that, a message showed up on his Telegram channel attributed to his wife, Miroslav Varoginskaya, who wrote, I'll just read it out, today at about 11.30, representatives of the investigative committee came to us. I was not at home at the time. Soon, according to the concierge, they took my husband under the arms, took him away in an unknown direction. From friends, I managed to find out that my husband is charged under Article 282 of the Criminal Code, extremism. I don't know anything about the whereabouts of my husband. He did not get in touch. I was not home at the time of the arrest. Now, I'm sure all followers of the podcast probably know who Igor Gherkin is, but the, the context is he has been a massive critic of just about everybody on the Russian side of this war since it began, and not from an anti-war perspective whatsoever, from the perspective of, God, you lot couldn't... I, I was going was gonna to use an expletive there. Um, you lot are really incompetent. You have no idea how to run a real war. We're going to lose if this carries on. He's, he's kept on about this like from almost the beginning. Relentless, gloomy predictions, um kind of viciously spitefully creative um kind of commentaries about everybody from Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister, the generals, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and and the president himself. Um he hasn't spared anybody um in his relentless criticisms. I must say that quite often his predictions have have worked out um when it comes to the kind of dire performance of the Russian military um in this war. Um it was always a question about why he was still at liberty and allowed to do this and tolerated. Um, part of the answer for that was that he was, you know, he's a former FSB man and he's of the party of war. He's a self-proclaimed Russian patriot. He's an ultra-nationalist. He's not. No one could paint him as an agent of the Ukrainians or the West. That said, I think probably what we're seeing is that tolerance, that patience with any kind of domestic criticism is now coming to an end in the wake of the June 24th attempted, well, June 24th mutiny, let's say, by Yevgeny Prigozhin and Wagner. And you'll be aware that several generals have been arrested. Surovikin is still missing. I, 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 would, I would guess uh, that this is, this is part of the same thing that the Kremlin has decided, right, from now on, we cannot tolerate this. This led to trouble. We are no longer going to have these public critics, no matter how patriotic they profess to be, prancing around on the internet, hurling insults at the Kremlin. Now, his lawyer has has put out an update to Russian media. He says he still doesn't know where he is. His lawyer says he's going down to the investigative committee headquarters to try and get some clarity about that. Now, 282 of the Criminal Code, which his wife says he's been charged under, is, I've got it here, actually. What have I done with it? So it's, it, it's the law on incitement of, incitement of hatred 
on grounds of sex, race, nationality, religion, language, that kind of thing, or membership of a social group. So it's equivalent to our law and, well, our law on the same thing, really. But it was amended in 2018 to rather soften it. And if this is a first-time offence and he hasn't already got an administrative charge, there's that distinction in Russian law between a criminal charge and an administrative charge, if he hasn't already got an administrative charge for doing this kind of thing that's valid in the past, 365 days then he's not up for the criminal charge on this so he's unlikely to face prison especially if this doesn't involve incitement to violence or didn't use the threat of violence or or actual violence in this so if it's not aggravated if it's a first-time offense he shouldn't technically be facing a massive a massive period in prison but that said this is putin's russia and he has been something of a thorn in the side of the Kremlin for eight to nine years. So who knows? Thank you very much, Roland, for that. Now we're going to try and bring on our guest, John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at the Modern War Institute. John, I know you're on a a Polish train at the moment with potentially spotty Wi-Fi. Can you hear us all right? Yeah, I can hear you good, David. John, you've been in Ukraine, in Kiev. Why did you go and who have you been speaking to? So I've been going actually every three to six months trying to gather the lessons of the war specific to my research, which, as you know, and many listeners know, is on urban warfare. So this time I went to learn more about the Battle of Kiev. I've been studying that for over a year. I spent a lot of time this time trying to piece together the Battle of Mariupol because many of the freed defenders of Mariupol are actually in recovery in and around the Kiev region. So I did a lot of interviews of Mariupol, Azestov, Steel Factory veterans, thanks to friends uh, that are there, because that, that battle for me is very important. I also met with senior leaders and really getting an understanding of the current challenges and from humanitarian relief runners to territorial defense to Ukrainian army training programs, a little bit of everything actually, but primarily on the research. And I also had a guest with me, a a history teacher from south of Boston who is trying to bring the lessons and the stories of Ukraine into her classroom, Ashley Duffney, who came in with me. So a really a packed over a week-long research trip. Well, let's talk about the Battle of Mariupol. Who did you speak to? What, 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 what did you ask them? What did they tell you? What, what were you looking for that we didn't know already? Yeah, actually, so a lot of Azov Brigade um, fighters. I met uh, multiple Azov Brigades, three at, at one time, senior sergeants and um, one of my last meetings was actually a married couple, which I had not heard this story. One of the commanders, one of the officers of the Azov Brigade, and a wife who was actually the public affairs officer of the Azov Brigade, who fought through Mariupol, were encircled at Azovstal. I, I found things interesting because I'm trying to piece together, because it's such a significant battle, how you know 3,000 Ukrainian fighters, a mixture of Azov Brigade, the Marines, the police, um, fought off. 20 to 40,000 Russians for over 90 days. So I'm really getting those stories. One of the commanders was able really to piece together who owned what sector of the city um, day by day, the major moments. I mean, actually, one of the things I found in this trip, which was really interesting for my research, is that the, well, everything that we've heard about the bunkers of the Azov Steel Factory, which is really the, the Alamo, the last stand, weren't that good at really protecting them from the aerial bombardments, the bunker buster munitions and things like that that the Russians dropped on the, the Azovstal. 
You mentioned you spoke to these people, many of whom are in recovery. How far along in recovery are they? Are many of them going to go back to the front? What, what do they say about, about their own journey from either being freed or, or getting out of Mariupol and coming back? Yeah, that's a mixture. Some of them are actually still participating in the brigade's training. Um, like the married couple, which is their story, is a, it's a movie in the cell. One was released in last September, but the, the female, Gerda, was only released this past May. One of the soldiers I met with was actually not in any of the uniform organizations. But he's, I don't know if you've heard this story, but basically a, a modern-day Bravo 2-0 where this soldier fought in the first couple of days and then survived in the basements of Mariupol for over nine months eating pigeons and drinking rainwater until he was, he, he was able to get a message out that he was still there and there was an operation to recover him. His name is Gina. So different stages. Some have rejoined the brigades, and I know everybody's seen that the, the commander who was released from Turkey, Redis Portovikenko, was immediately rejoined the brigade and is retraining and redeploying. So I've met really a variety, but the one soldier who had spent over nine months in he was originally captive uh, for about four weeks and had all his teeth broken and had been cut and shot, but still survived for nine months. He's going through extensive medical recovery there in Kiev. When you're looking at the current counteroffensive, I mean, we've we've spent quite a bit of time this week and last week looking at some of the problems and the uh, obstacles and issues that the Ukrainian armed forces are finding in prosecuting the counteroffensive. What are you hearing from the soldiers themselves? Yeah, I've heard... So it's been reported this extensive mining that the Russians have done and how difficult that is on the limited number of demining equipment, the limited number of sappers, the the use of redeployable artillery-delivered mines, so Russia, you demine and then the Russians will just remine it. And then the challenge that's causing for the counteroffensive. But this time I was trying to get... That's part of my research is to walk the ground to see the terrain. I didn't get to get out there, but uh, really talking to the trainers who are really working, which I found fascinating on how that the Ukrainians actually building armies at the same time, but how are they gathering lessons from one unit who are discovering difficulties or new tactics, or, and then how the Ukrainian army back in Kiev or other locations is incorporating those lessons learned into the force and how the challenges that are there for that, and then talking to me the way it was really fascinating. The mines seem to be the predominant thing that's slowing down because the, the Ukrainians aren't going to throw thousands of lives to the wind or you know, tens of thousands of lives to die like the Russians will. So the, the deliberate reconnaissance, demining difficulties that are happening. Thank you so much, John. I know we've just got one question from Francis before we go to Maria. So Francis Sternley. Thanks, David. And thanks, John, for coming back on, especially when you're when you're traveling. Just one question from me. There's obviously been a lot of conversations around the lessons of this war, not just in the battles you're looking at now, but over the whole span of the conflict so far. As an expert on urban warfare, what are your main takeaways from this war so far? If you to summarise them briefly, I know that's a very big question. Uh, I mean, there's just there's a lot. I mean, a lot of them are lessons relearned that the underground is the 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 protection from the aerial observation and the aerial strikes are, are very critical. I mean, there are some lessons that are being relearned about trench warfare, and I talked to the the Ukrainian military about 
trying to gather those lessons even for myself on how do you properly construct certain types of fortification, both in urban areas uh, and, and in, in rural areas. But one of the lessons I found fascinating was you know, the deployment of snipers and things like that in elevated concealed positions, which is really, really infamous in urban areas, right, from all battles. When the Ukrainians basically said you can't do that anymore because of the Russian way of fighting, that if they identify any source of a enemy threat, an Ukrainian, whether it's a sniper position or a squad or whatever, they don't, they don't, they just bombard it. So that has really changed their tactics. So that was a very interesting part of the lessons learned in fights like Bakhmut, which is high intensity on how do you conceal, cover, deploy forces. And I'm really looking into the evolution of the Russian tactics, right? The use of, they really seem to use mobilized forces, Wagner prisoners, as their discovery of the other side's positions. And it will sacrifice a thousand soldiers just to find out where you are bring in mass artillery, and then later send in professionalized troops. So this is really impacting the lessons that I learned as I go around the world and really talk to other militaries about how they're preparing for urban warfare, and, and especially the context of different urban fights versus Kherson is much different than Mariupol or Bakhmut is much different than Kyiv. But that aspect of gathering the, the way that the enemy fights, but how important cover is and protection even in a city that you think is um, emptied uh, of uh, other obstacles well thank you so much john for joining us thank you for making time for the podcast on your journey i think we can we can hear quite a lot of the ambient sound from polish railways so thank you so much it's great to speak to you and i'm sure we'll catch up again once you're back um, home thank you john spencer just finally before we go to our final thoughts it's a great pleasure to welcome maria romanenko Listeners may recall when she met up with Francis in Liverpool when he covered Eurovision. Maria, a bit of a subject change, really. You want to update us on a an initiative that this podcast had, had had a little bit to do with at the beginning. I'm not sure how much this will mean to John, but Maria, do you want to talk to us about what's happening tomorrow at the Ashes? Hello. Yeah, so tomorrow we uh, have 14 Ukrainian kids who all have come to Greater Manchester post-full-scale invasion. We have organized for them to do the God of Honor at the Ashes on the fourth day of the Ashes in Manchester at Old Trafford. And that's just a really exciting occasion because it's a lifetime, a once in a lifetime opportunity for them. You know, the next time it happens in Manchester will be in about eight years, I believe. And they will be, those kids will already be not, you know, too, too sort of grown up for that. So it's a once in a lifetime opportunity for them. It's an opportunity for them to experience British culture, English culture. I don't think it gets any more English than cricket. And it's an opportunity, I guess, for media to give a bit more coverage to Ukraine because I believe there will be some coverage about the Ukrainian kids doing this. Normally it's like local school kids doing the Guard of Honor, but this time we have worked with Lancashire Cricket Foundation and ECB and Castor, which is the official sort of brand that does uniforms for the England team. They kindly provided uh, 14 uniforms for these kids and uh, it just should be a really, really special occasion, I believe, if the rain doesn't ruin it for us. Maria, just very quickly, what's your involvement in this initiative been? And do you get a sense from the kids that they're enjoying the, any, any of the training or any, any of the cricket they've been playing so far? So my involvement, my, my partner Jess, Jess Myers and I, we organised all of this. So we, we initially contacted Lancashire Cricket Foundation to cooperate in some way. We were thinking of cricket lessons for Ukrainian kids because Ukrainian kids don't really know what cricket is. Cricket hasn't really had much of a life in Ukraine. It had a it had a represent it had like a coach, 
but he was South African, so he has left he left Ukraine after the full-scale invasion. And most of the people who were doing cricket in Ukraine, there were like students from India and other countries. So they left the country since full-scale invasion. So most Ukrainians don't really know what cricket is. And we thought we'd introduce them to that by doing some sort of lessons for them. There's a Saturday um, Ukrainian school in Manchester. So we thought of bringing a coach to teach them that. But they suggested something that I think might even be cooler or better or at least bigger on the scale is doing this Guard of Honor. So we cooperated on that. We organized with Castor the uniforms for them. So that's that's my involvement. And obviously we'll be there tomorrow. And I liaised, you know, I talked with other parents. I found all the 14 kids myself with the help of the Saturday school. There was obviously the problem that they didn't have a uniform look because normally when it's local kids, they have already a school uniform that they all, all have the same uniform. But this time they didn't. So that's where Castor stepped in and kindly provided us with 14 uniforms for these kids, which they'll get to keep. So I think that's a an upside for that as well. You know, they, they get like an official England uniform training kit for cricket. Just very quickly, Maria, out of interest, what do what do the kids' mums make of all this? They, they don't understand what this is. So I think we had to do some um, sort of educating and telling them what cricket is and how important it is because one mum was like initially going to do it and then she was like, oh, actually we've been asked to go on this church trip to Liverpool so we might not be able to do it. And I was like, you need to do this. This is the important part. So we had to do some education with some kids and some mums. There's one child who actually has played cricket since he came to the UK. He's been doing some cricket lessons. There's one grandma who's like really, you know, she's she's taking her grandson and she's really excited. She was like, I'm, I think I'm more excited than my grandson is. And there's one dad who's also really excited for his, he's taking his daughter. So there's different views of this. Some people don't realise how big this is, but I tried to do my sort of cultural dem- diplomacy and um, explain to people that this is a really big deal for for England and for Australia. Well, congratulations on an amazing initiative, Maria. And just I, I would say thanks from our side to uh, Hamish Breton Gordon, who I know got involved uh, earlier on after one of the podcasts uh, you and Jez were on and, and, and offered to help out as well. So thank you so much to Hamish uh, for that. Well, best of luck tomorrow, and I really hope the rain stays away. Francis Sternley, can I just get your final thoughts before we end today? Thanks, David. And since we're talking about the ashes, just wanted to inform our Australian listeners that it's currently 512 for eight, with England leading by 195 runs. Just thought you'd you'd like an update. It's been a while since we've mentioned Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader on the podcast. He is, of course, already serving a nine-year prison sentence at a penal colony some 155 miles east of Moscow, I think, if I remember that correctly. He has released a statement over Putin's senseless invasion of Ukraine as prosecutors are requesting a jail term of 20 years for him to be served in an even more restrictive prison. Speaking during a closed-door trial, Mr Navalny said Russia was floundering in a pool of either mud or blood with broken bones with a poor and robbed population. Across the country, he said, lie tens of thousands of people killed in the most stupid and senseless war of the 21st century. He is expected to hear his verdict on the 4th of August. He said previously that he was handed a 4,000 Uh, page dossier detailing the offences he'd purportedly committed while isolated in prison. I imagine that this statement will add another to that. 
In a concluding statement in the court, Mr Navalny once again called on Russians to stand up to the regime. He said for a new, free, rich country to be born, some sacrifice, some effort has to be made by everyone. Sooner or later, Russia will rise again and it depends on us to decide in what way it will lean in the future. Now, Mr Navalny is not a figure without controversy, particularly among Ukrainians. But that sentiment is one that has been repeated by many brave Russian opposition figures, such as Vladimir Kalamuza, who is, of course, also serving time in prison. They argue that a new future is possible if people are brave enough to resist. Both he and Navalny could have left Russia, but they decided to stay and do so as an act of resistance to show the Russian people, but also the world, that there are people in that country who are standing up for more democratic values. We cover the day-to-day chaos of this war on the podcast, but it's important not to forget those who are serving time in prison for their criticisms of this war and the expressions that we make on a day-to-day basis, which we always remember, is ultimately a privilege. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear. And the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.